0: All right, if you would uh, open up in your Bibles, if you have a Bible here with you this morning, or Bible app to Second Peter chapter 3. We are gonna be concluding our time together in this, this series we've been doing through First and Second Peter. Uh, my name is Wes Calton. If, if you don't know who I am, um, I'm not one of the pastors here, which is why I feel the need to, to, to say who I am. Uh, I work for RUF, which is the campus ministry of the PCA, uh, at Kennesaw State. And so, because of this church and others like it, I get to reach students for Christ there and equip them to serve Jesus and his church. Um, and I'm just so thankful for the chance to get to share God's word with you. This is our, our home church, our family. Um, and y'all have been such an encouragement to us over this past year uh, through your generosity, through faith promise, your generosity as individuals, um, and not just your, your financial contributions, but for many of you, your hospitality to students. Uh, your love towards students has been an encouragement to us. And so uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to say thank you uh, even as we we now turn our attention to God's word. And I hope that uh, even though I haven't spoken at all in this series, that you still hear a lot of the same things, Uh, that as we conclude our time together, hopefully we can see the ways in which Peter is tying together so many of the themes of the idea of truly living for the life of the world Um, as God's people, as this this holy nation that has been set apart uh, to proclaim the excellencies of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, And as he makes his final appeal to us in this passage, uh, hopefully we'll see that that beautiful connection to so many of the things that have been said earlier in this series. And so I'd like for us to begin our time in this passage uh, by reading it. I'd like to read it for us as we begin. And then I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer after I've read that. Um, that we would go to the throne of grace together. And so let me read this passage for us as we get started. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise... As we come to your word this morning, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you're a God who speaks, who speaks life to his people, who gathers a people together who was not a people, and makes us your people uh, by the grace and mercy of our, our Lord Jesus. And as we come to your word this morning, we would ask that just as you have been with us in our worship... Just as you have been with us in our singing and our praying, you would continue to be with us as we give attention to your word, as we seek to hold to your word and submit to it. Um, Father, we rejoice in and take comfort in the fact that you know where each of us is coming from. You know our hearts better than we know them ourselves. And so you alone are capable of applying this word in a way that no one else can. We would ask that you would do just that by the work of your spirit this morning and that you would use your word to bring glory to your name in this congregation, in this family. Not just here this morning as we continue to worship, but as we go out into the world and seek to be faithful pilgrims, um, elect exiles, this holy nation um, that you are so delighted in, in Christ. Um, Father, we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I suppose... um, Many of us, I hope, have heard about and perhaps even prayed for or even given a contribution to uh, the fires going on in California. Hopefully that's not something you've missed. I'm pretty disconnected from the world, and even I caught that. Um, And and one of the things that happens whenever we encounter these sort of disasters, these sort of horrible events, is hopefully we start to hear stories, and we we almost long for those stories, don't we, of, of heroism, of people responding to these, these atrocities and the, these horrible things with courage and bravery. Uh, perhaps, like me, you, you heard the story of one such person, Alan Pierce. Uh, he, he kind of went viral because of the picture he posted to Instagram of his truck, this beautiful, nice, white Toyota Tundra that he had clearly spent a good deal of money on to uh, lift, as the kids say, and give it bigger wheels and do all these, these things to it. Um, but because of the fires and because he had been part of uh, the evacuation efforts and had come very close to being caught in his truck himself, it had turned almost into a marshmallow. The outside of it had been burnt, and it looked much like a marshmallow. And he, he posted that kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek, but thankful for the way in which he and others were able to escape. Um, and it was so interesting because as he, as he talked about it in, in an article about him, he mentioned that that was his, his dream truck, um, and he was just thankful that, that he was able to serve people through that truck. And when you see the picture of the truck, you can quickly imagine, like, okay, he, he clearly put money into that. Uh, I doubt his dream truck was something that he would have been very happy if, if you or I had bumped into in the parking lot and put a dent in. And yet, uh, that sudden change in circumstances, right, the smell of smoke in the air, uh, the, the impending doom, the reality of the faces as a nurse that he was called to serve quickly led him to, to act heroically and bravely. Uh, it, it changed the way he kind of valued that vehicle in a moment, in an instant. And I think many of us would hope that we would respond with the same sort of bravery and courage and sobriety when faced with, with immediate danger. But oftentimes in left life, that is, that is not our context, is it? Uh, that The threat of danger is not immediate. The wind seems to be blowing in another direction. threat seems far off. Most of our life often seems so mundane and ordinary and lacks that sense of urgency. And as we, as a church family, have made our way through First and Second Peter, one of the things that Peter has recognized as an obstacle for us living the life that Jesus calls us to live, to actually truly live for the life of the world, is this, this false teaching and this tendency in our own hearts, and especially in the hearts of those who would lead us astray, to, to leverage the delay of the Lord in returning, to leverage that ordinariness, that that mundane, uh, seeming uh, waiting on God's part to act to lead us to believe or, or, or doubt that Jesus is returning. And so that is something that, that Peter has been wrestling with because he recognizes that for many of the false teachers, the, the suggestion that Jesus is not returning, that the doubting of his judgment, the doubting of his restoration is meant to, to lead for the freedom to, to live self-serving lives that these false teachers are seeking to live as they wish by suggesting that the coming reality is not what the gospel says it is. And so Peter has fault to, to, to insist that no, these things are true, that we can look back in the history of God's people and see the faithfulness of God to his promises, that we can see the faithfulness of God in Christ who died and raised for us, and that that, that coming judgment is certain. And yet that is not where Peter ends his letter, is it? He did not end where we ended last week. He was not content simply to state that, that God's uh, judgment is coming in Christ and now figure it out yourselves. But instead, I think he recognizes that the question of how are we then to live in light of that coming reality is one that, that, that merits attention, that in many ways is not a given, that, that requires us thinking intentionally about well, what sort of living matches with the future that is coming in Christ. And that, that that question is often a difficult one because of the temptation in our own hearts to, to easily go back to, to living as if that is not an imminent reality, as if God's kingdom is not yet both already and not yet, that the kingdom has already broken forth in our lives as Jesus has taken over our hearts and brought us into his kingdom of grace. And so it's a question I want us to wrestle with this morning as a church family. What does it look like for us to live in light of the future that Jesus is bringing? And a question that I hope helps us do that on the front end of this passage is to ask the question of ourselves, well, what are the things that, that determine what is valuable in my week? Right? What are the sorts of values and ideas and things that, that form a framework for determining what matters to me? Because I think Peter is putting an argument before us this morning that this should matter in how we evaluate our lives and structure our lives. And yet if we're honest, there are so many things, aren't there, that determine how we spend our time in the week, the way we think about our family budgets, our careers, our free time, our vacation. And in many of those things, we often are tempted to fall back into things other than Christ and the hope that we have in him as the ultimate framework and and value system for determining those things. So what does it look like for us to wait? What does it look like for us to live in light of this reality? The first thing that that we see in the passage, I think, is that we are called to wait in holiness and even hasten God's judgment and restoration through our lives of holiness and godliness. In verses 11 through 15, if you have your Bibles, you look and see that Peter poses this question, um, Since all these things are thus to be resolved, what sort of people ought you to be? He doesn't hesitate. I hope it's encouraging to you that that Peter's not presenting a puzzle to us this morning. He asks a question and then, now you go figure it out, or he says it in some uh, veiled way so that only the the truly informed can get it. No, he he lays it, he tips his hand immediately, doesn't he? Lives of holiness and godliness. That there's appropriate living that matches with uh, what Jesus is coming to do, that We're to wait in holiness, and we're even to participate in the coming kingdom through our holiness and our godliness, which we'll we'll come back to in just a moment. But there's two things that, that immediately should impact how we think about our holiness, and I think both of these things are helpful to us as we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. As we seek to grow in holiness, there are two aspects of Jesus' coming that bear on our present holiness and efforts towards change. The first is, is verse 12. He repeats for us this idea of God's coming judgment, a destruction that will be unlike anything else we've ever seen, that will be utter and devastating, and yet still contains within it because of the language of melting and burning, this, this image of purification. And if that's a tension for you, if it's, <laughs> if it's hard for you to look at that passage and, and see that, I think that's good. <laughs> Uh, sometimes we use the language of purification and it can sound so, so nice and pretty, and yet uh, right, the, the fire is necessary to burn off the dross. Uh, true purification is, is a messy, dangerous, destructive thing. It's powerful. And it's total. You know, it's, it's kind of striking. Earlier he he's told us just a few verses earlier in the passage we looked at last week that both the heavens and the earth will kind of melt away uh, Here he repeats the idea, but he only mentions the heavens. And I think it's kind of a healthy corrective to the way we tend to think about judgment. Sometimes we're tempted to only apply a passage of judgment to material things, right? Like this idea that, yeah, all of this stuff is going to burn away, all that bad stuff. And it's easy for us to fall in this trap of thinking that the real problem is the stuff out there. Uh, It's the physical things. And while it's certainly true that there are many things we will not be taking with us, right? Peter doesn't just say the earth is going to melt away, but even the heavens, even the thing that we often associate with God's dwelling place, with spiritual realities, with lofty ideas, right? this is a, a total judgment that will lay bare not just our investments um, from a material perspective, but our spiritual investments. The things we've lived for, the desires that have shaped us, the, the, the idols that we are so prone to fall back into. And so, from the one hand, you can see how that as Peter encourages us towards lives of holy waiting, the sobriety of the coming judgment should be a helpful corrective, a, a healthy uh, measuring stick in many ways for, for what we're living for and, and whether the things we're investing in, whether they be physical, material things or, or other things, regardless, whether they're things that will last or things that will melt away with the heavens and the heavenly bodies. Coupled with that, we have the promise in verse 13 of God's restoration. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right? And, and the beautiful emphasis that, that, that Peter lands on there is that, yes, there is a new heavens and a new earth coming, which certainly speaks to some level of continuity, some level of familiarity with what we have known. And yet the defining characteristic of this new heavens and new earth is a place where righteousness dwells. Where righteousness, where what God loves and cherishes is the norm. Where all of the the sad things and the false things and the evil things have been undone and utterly done away with. The good news of the gospel that Jesus doesn't just deal with the guilt of our sin and doesn't just deal with the power of sin in our lives as he changes us, but our final hope is a complete eradication of even the presence of sin. In a place where we will finally be free to love God and to love one another as he always intended. And that these two realities are realities that we need to bring to bear on our lives uh, to, to really understand what God is doing in this world. Um, it reminds me in some ways of the idea of a restoration of an old car. This is an illustration I almost hesitate to use because it's one of those, I don't want someone to mistake me for in any ways knowledgeable in this area, and I'll probably prove that in just a moment. Um, but if, if you think about the restoration of an old car, one that's especially in, in bad shape, If you've ever watched one of those uh, reality shows where they they deal in restoration, it's often amazing how much has to be removed and stripped away in order to get to a place where you can actually rebuild something. Um, And oftentimes, the, the worse shape it's in, the more that has to either be removed or replaced or refashioned. And I think in a lot of ways, the world that we are facing, the world that Peter is calling us to live faithfully in and for whose life we're to live for in Christ, is a project that that we should look at is in many ways too far gone, but for the grace of God, right? That, that it's, it's a vehicle that's so full of corruption and rust and decay that we might say, this project isn't worth it, and yet Jesus says it is, but it will require a great deal of casting out. And as we, we ask ourselves what matters, what is it that is going to be restored and redeemed and a part of that final project, those are the things that should draw our hearts and lead us into the reality that Jesus longs for us to participate in and to care for. And that's exactly where Peter goes in verse 14, isn't it? That given these dual realities, our, our holy waiting is to be defined by a diligence, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, that's an interesting moment because here Peter is is using a phrase that he used all the way back in his first letter to describe Jesus as this perfect sacrifice, as the Lamb of God, whose blood, by, by whose blood we have been redeemed. And so clearly he's hearkening back to this idea that, that we can only be found without spot or blemish as we are cleansed by the blood of Christ and as we pursue righteousness by the grace of Jesus. Right? That it's only in him that we have any real hope for both being found, uh, without spot or blemish, and actually growing in the peace of God. And that, that phrase, at peace, it's, it's broad, isn't it? it almost, sometimes it almost frustrates us how broad it can be, right? What are we, what are we talking about when we talk about peace? Um, oftentimes when it's not modified by, by something pointing us to our peace with God, it's actually something that points to our peace with one another that's the result of God's work in our lives. Um, That we have this new vertical peace, this reconciliation with God that is the basis for our now seeking to love one another in the body of Christ, and that that peace even speaks to what God has done in our relationship with him. And so clearly, uh, Peter says that because of these ongoing realities, we keep going back to the grace of God in our lives and cultivating peace among the body, because ultimately, God's waiting is a redemptive waiting. Waiting verse 15, that our waiting is actually a participation in God's purpose in waiting himself. And this is a point that Peter has made several times and that that deserves coming back to, and it's a point Peter says that Paul also makes. That as we struggle with the ordinariness of our lives, of another day where things seem to be falling apart and Jesus has not come back, each and every day, Peter says, is a redemptive moment. It's God's Patience aimed at salvation. His salvation working out in our lives and his salvation working out as his people proclaim the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. And that the the, the leverage of the false teachers is a false leverage that seeks to distract us from the fact that God is seeking to work peace and mercy through his waiting. And I think this is partly what Peter's talking about to go back to uh, the beginning, verse 11, when he uses... Or verse 12, this phrase, hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, for some of you, perhaps you're not familiar with it, or this is not where you are, and that's okay. You can relax. But for a lot of us Reformed folk, I think we struggle with this idea of hastening the day of the Lord. Uh, we want to hold fast to God's sovereignty, his control, especially his sovereignty and salvation. And yet, we do God's word a disservice, and we create a false, unbiblical dichotomy when we fail to recognize the way in which God's sovereignty works out through his people often in ordinary ways, in ordinary means of grace. That God is a God who delights to work through the prayers of his people. That God is a God who delights in working through the testimonies of his people, of his grace in their lives. That Jesus looked at a band of people that we would never pick and said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that Peter wants us to see that as this, this royal, holy nation, this, this priesthood, we too are part of God's plan in hastening the day of the Lord Jesus. And we can say that and believe that and be encouraged by that while still recognizing the mystery of the timing of it all, right? All of that speaks to the quality of the time of waiting. It doesn't speak to our guessing when that's going to be, but to live with a holy expectation the way that in many times, and in many places, the church has done a much better job than we probably do as modern Christians. This idea of eagerly anticipating and even working towards the return of Jesus as a motivation. And in many ways, Peter's asking the question, what really matters? Why are we here? What's our purpose in Christ? And we've answered it over and over again in this series, to, to live for the life of the world to the glory of God. One of the things I loved doing with Kelly's dad that was really special uh, was skiing. And whether it was water skiing or snow skiing, one of his phrases that he loved to say that he by no means coined, it was very cliche, but it was sweet because he was a teddy bear and he said it in such a sweet way, is that we're just here to have fun. We're just here to have fun, right? It doesn't matter if the chairlift is, is uh, stopped, if people are running into you on the slopes, the snow's in bad condition. Uh, Kent just loved being out there and he loved reminding us of why we were out there and he meant so much more than just, let's just try and enjoy the skiing because we're out here to ski. right? He loved the memories and the conversations, the opportunities on the chairlift, the opportunities and the ride there. It was so helpful to be reminded of that. It's something I want to do with, with my children as well. And in a sense, that's exactly what Peter hopes to do with us, right? It's so easy when we hear words like holiness and godliness, to, we feel this wave of guilt. And we start to think that our righteousness is just like some game and some end to itself right to to make ourselves feel better to convince ourselves that we're actually trying like we're supposed to it can feel so disconnected in our lives because we don't see the fruit of it in others lives did that make any difference at all and and peter looks at us and says why are we here your holiness your efforts towards change in christ by grace alone right it's part of god's redemptive patience it's part of his plan of salvation." You do have this purpose, even though oftentimes it's so hard to see it. Right? And so we are called to live for the life of the world. And I don't mean to suggest that that means that, that any moment in which we're not doing evangelism, uh, like Cameron says, this isn't just a call to, to pass out tracks, uh, to restock our tracks, and always have some tracks in our back pocket. Right? It, it's called for a full-orbed all of life living for the glory of God recognizing that that in word and in indeed in every turn we have a chance to serve God and speak to this coming kingdom in our righteousness and our holiness that Jesus is cultivating that it matters in our workplace it matters in our politics it matters in our family it matters in our neighborhoods that we live a faithful as faithful signpost to the coming kingdom and that is all part of God's redemptive plan of mercy and yet it's meant to be something that does reorient us and help us prioritize the things that truly matter. That's one of the reasons why I love that, that, that image of, of going skiing with Kent and being reminded that way. Even in that context, something that seems so superfluous, right? Uh, R&R, going skiing. Uh, I hope there's some skiing in the New Heavens and New Earth. The, the, the thing that really mattered for him was the relationships. That whether there will be skiing or not in the New Heavens and New Earth, I know that those conversations... Uh, God's people seeking to love each other and care for each other, those will be there. That will be part of that kingdom in which righteousness dwells. Uh, Dick Lucas and Christopher Green, in speaking on this passage in the message of 2 Peter and Jude, say that Christians have enormous difficulty in grasping the two points that although Jesus has left us a number of things to do, there is a clear order of priority in their relative importance. We easily attach greatest importance to the visible and the urgent. But it is clear from What Peter has taught that the greatest need our world faces is its need for a savior on the day of judgment that helps us order our priorities. For everything we do will be laid bare and exposed to God's scrutiny and the cosmic judgment. And so I hope you're encouraged by both the the sobriety of, of needing to recognize the ways in which our idols and our desires that do not line up with the kingdom need to be challenged by God's coming judgment. And yet to also ask that question, right? What gifts has Jesus given me to cultivate in anticipation of and even hastening the final restoration of all things as someone who has the chance to proclaim the excellencies of our Savior. The next section in Peter's talk might seem like an excursus, and some interpreters have almost seen it that way. He mentions how these things agree with Paul, and then he starts talking about Scripture and the way that false teachers have used it. And yet, especially having been through First and Second Peter, I hope we see the way in which that the call to hold to Scripture and to humbly even submit to it fits very well with the call to wait in holiness and godliness. I think Peter hasn't just gotten excited about a pet topic here. Instead, he recognizes that one of the chief areas of battle for our hearts will be whether we can humbly hold to Scripture as we seek to be reminded and and live in light of Jesus' coming uh, th- this, this section, uh, this was completely random, that, or I don't I, I, obviously it's not random, God planned it. Uh, but, but I love these verses. Uh, I jokingly tell students each fall that this is one of my life verses, and they're always a little confused when we first read it. But we do this Bible study uh, where we talk about Scripture, and, and this verse comes up because it's significant in several ways and what it teaches us about Scripture. Uh, but it's always a blessing to me to hear Peter, an inspired, authoritative author of Scripture admit that there's some things that are hard to understand in Paul. Um, and, and the reason I think that that's not just a, a little excursus for us, but it's actually important is because, in many ways, Peter is modeling for us what he's calling for in this passage. Right? That as he mentions that one of the ways false teaching often works in our lives is it capitalizes on the difficult parts of Scripture, the things that are hard to understand. And, and there's a, an implication here, isn't there, that oftentimes our hearts are eagerly waiting for an opportunity to see Scripture say what we would like for it to say. That one of the ways that we're called to respond to those hard parts of Scripture is to humbly go back to God's Word and say, what has God said in other places? And might I need to step back and say, this is hard to understand. There's a pride among the false teachers that when they find these difficult parts of Scripture, this is the chance to say what they've been looking to say, to to exploit the things they've been looking to exploit and yet Peter says that our attitude is to be different. And it's, it's a beautiful example, isn't it? Because he references Paul, someone he's had a public conflict with. Someone who in one of his inspired authoritative letters, Paul has publicly said Peter was wrong. He stood with the circumcision party and it was wrong what he did. And yet clearly reconciliation has happened in Peter's life. And Peter is seeking to submit to God's word even as he writes God's word. As he does in all his letters when he writes these things. So I know it's it's a universal human experience, right? Having someone take something you said and run with it and completely misinterpret it. And oftentimes when we find ourselves in those moments, what do we we think to ourselves? Like, I wish you had considered all the other things I'd said about this and interpreted it in light of that. Or, Or maybe it would have been nice if you had humbly come back to me and said, hey, when you said this, what did you mean? And as simple as that might seem, that's exactly what, what Peter's encouraging us to do with God's Word, to not twist God's Word, to say things that he never meant, but to go back to God's Word. And it's actually one of the key ideas that drove the Reformation, right, that, the, that Scripture is one of the best interpreters of Scripture itself, that we would let God speak to what God is speaking to when we come across difficult and challenging parts of His Word and this has been such a helpful verse for me um, and a challenging one because on the college campus we do have many groups on campus that, that are teaching things that are a false gospel, that are either seeking to add things to Christ that are, they're saying are necessary for salvation or something that's totally different and yet using scripture as a springboard. And ironically, one of the most common passages, the passages we looked at earlier in 1 Peter chapter 3 that, that Cameron, I think, very humbly admitted, right, this is a hard passage, there's lots of different um, interpretations of it, but the, the passage about uh, spirits in prison in Noah's day. Um, and it's this passage that I've heard groups at, at KSU use to try and make these, these crazy claims. Um, and, right? Like I said, ironically, like later on, Peter gives us the perfect hermeneutic, the perfect principle of interpretation for saying, wait a second, this is a warning flag. Right? This is a hard passage. Why are you going to this passage to try and justify what you want to do or see because what, why this matters so much as Peter wraps up his argument is verse 17. That if our attitude towards Scripture begins to be, I'm going to make Scripture say what I want it to say, we actually, in a very real way, pull the rug out from under ourselves. We remove our foundation and our stability in Christ because Scripture is no longer standing over us and pointing us to Jesus. We're trying to use it to point where we want to go. Right, And so he says there's a danger here that that as you follow these false teachers in the way they use scripture, you yourselves will lose your own stability. I love the way Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. We must go to the book in that spirit of humility and with a readiness to listen and to learn. Though my pet theory may prove to be wrong, it does not matter. I must go in that childlike manner even as Peter listened to his beloved brother Paul. You see how Martin Lloyd-Jones is pointing to the fact that Peter is both encouraging us towards a spirit of humility and is even modeling it in the way he goes to Paul's writing to, to reinforce what he is saying and, and to pull us away from the ways in which we twist Scripture. And so I hope for you this morning there's a freedom for you, there's a blessing in seeing that we can uh, loudly and confidently proclaim that God's Word is sufficient and inerrant and everything we need for life and faith and salvation, and yet we also can humbly admit that there's, there's difficult parts that we can hold all of those things to be true and still admit that not all parts are equally clear and easy to understand. And that's actually a a healthy submission to scripture in saying that. We should land where Paul, or or, excuse me, we've been in Colossians all semester, where Peter lands in uh, chapter three, verse 18. It's almost like he anticipates, I think, a, a danger that as we hear the language of waiting as we we hear this idea of holding to Scripture, Christians might be tempted to think, well, sounds like we're playing a pretty defensive game here. (laughs) Like we need to to fall back into a defensive position and just kind of hold on to what we have until Jesus gets back. We need to shore up the troops and just make the fort stronger. And it could sound like a, a fairly static thing. And yet... The waiting that Peter calls us to, the holding to Scripture in Christ, it is always a dynamic waiting. It is never meant to be a static thing because we are always called to grow in Christ. Because our waiting is waiting for a changing, a new reality of a new heavens and a new earth, our waiting is always aimed towards growth and change in our own lives that speaks to that coming reality. Because God's word is living and active, to hold fast to God's word and to humbly submit to it is not simply a static waiting game. It's an interaction with something that will change us and shape us. And so uh, Peter's words in verse 18 is not a a change in direction. It affirms and builds up everything that he's been leading to in both of his letters that in Christ we are always seeking to grow That the the, the exhortation to grace and knowledge is not just an exhortation to facts about Jesus. It's an exhortation towards intimacy with Christ. To knowing and being known by the living God who cares for us and redeems us. And that 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 active waiting shouldn't come as a surprise to us because of one of the ways in which we think about Jesus' work in the world is a harvest, isn't it? And that amazingly, and perhaps sometimes we would say, it seems like it's not the greatest plan, and yet God does it anyways. He calls us as laborers into that harvest, doesn't he? That even as we ourselves are part of the harvest, even as we are part of the vine that the great vine dresser is pruning, we are also called to be laborers in this harvest, working to see the fruit of Jesus in others' lives, working to spread the word of God in others' people's lives, working to testify to Jesus' goodness through our growth and grace working to see the kingdom of God extend to the ends of the earth. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that, that our waiting is active, that our growth in grace is part of Jesus' plan, and that it all ultimately comes back to his glory and goodness. And that's actually part of the reason for our hope. Right? Don't miss that, that because this is part of God's plan, it's part of his redemptive patience, for Peter to say, to him be the glory, it's good news for us, because God has intimately attached his glory to the success and growth and endurance of his people. That just as Jesus cannot let his father go unglorified, now in Christ, in union with him, we are attached to God's glory. Right, that is the ultimate foundation for our pushing back against false teaching in our lives and the false teaching our hearts are prone to. Listen to the way that Paul Gardner puts it. He says, How should we, how we should all long for that deeper knowledge of and relationship with Jesus? Herein lies our Christian joy, but here also lies our ultimate defense against false teachers through his grace. Through the relationship the Lord Jesus forges with us, his children, we will not fall from our secure position, but will remain firmly established in the truth. Right, that, that as Peter calls for growth, he also reminds us of our firm foundation as our basis for hope. And I hope that that is something that is an encouragement to you this morning. And an encouragement for us is we turn our attention to this table. Uh, being in campus ministry and because of our, our denomination's particular views, I don't uh, get the chance often to uh, administer the Lord's table. Uh, but especially at the end of this series, and given what Peter just said, it's, it's special to come to this table, um, because it's a table that speaks to the hope we have. Um, in, in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus institutes the table, the thing I want us to, to hear and see this morning is the hope that Jesus attaches to this meal. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take Eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Part of the good news of, of what Jesus has done for us on the cross is the hope that we have that not only has he dealt with our sins in the present, but one day Jesus will share that table with us in the new heavens and the new earth. That as we come to this table, it is a reminder to us of the grace we need to continue growing in Christ and pointing to that coming kingdom. And yet, hopefully without offending you, we'll recognize that there's, there's meant to be something unsatisfying about this meal not just like the size of the portions. Uh, that Jesus wants us to long for something more. That this, this, this meal reminds us that he loves us and that he cares for us now in the present and we are to feed by the mouth of faith upon him and yet we are waiting for that day where Jesus will sit across from us and he'll say, I've longed for this moment to share this meal more fully with you a place where we can eat and dine, where righteousness dwells. You see, this is a meal of hope, not just for the sin that you and I are struggling with today and tomorrow, but it's a meal that also points us forward to our final hope in the new heavens, in the new earth, and God's hospitality towards us in Christ. And so I hope that's something that is an encouragement to you as we turn our attention to this meal, as the, the elders make their way forward and we prepare to celebrate this meal. I hope that given the things I've just said about this meal, it won't seem surprising to you uh, that I'll say to you, this is a family meal. That given everything that we've just said about what this meal represents, to partake of this meal without trusting Jesus, without having bent the knee to him and put faith in him, would would be to make this meal a lie. That that would be of no help to you or to us. And and if you're here this morning, especially someone who, who doesn't believe in Jesus, one. We're so thankful that you're here. We're honored for you to be here with us and, and to sit and listen to these things and hear these things and, and to not be sure where you are. We're so thankful for that. And yet, we would encourage you just to let these elements pass. To reflect on, on what they represent and signify and to not feel the pressure to, to proclaim something that, that, that isn't true for you. And if you're here this morning, either through this church and says, I'm not the pastor here, I'm, I'm truly... Not to no, know, but or from another church that under discipline, that, that that your church in love and in pursuit of you has said, please don't partake of this meal. Please respect that um, and don't partake. But if you are here this morning and, and you claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you are struggling with sin and perhaps feeling at times that you fail in that struggle, this meal is for you. This meal is a visible reminder. It's it's visible words for you to feed upon Jesus Christ. His body broken for you, his blood poured out for you, the blood of the new covenant, the blood of the new heavens and the new earth. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Father, as we come to this table, once again we thank you for it. We thank you that you're a God who not only speaks truth to us, but you give us these visible tokens symbols of your grace, assurances of your grace to us in Jesus, meant to build us up, meant to feed us. And so, Father, we would ask that you would do just that this morning, that you would take these common, ordinary elements and you would set them apart for a holy purpose, that you would build us up in Christ and help us to see more and more how we are part of your redemptive patience, how our growing in grace, how our holding fast to your word is part of your plan of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is the norm, where the hope of this meal is fulfilled, where faith turns to sight. God, we thank you for this meal and ask your blessing in it. In Jesus' name, amen.